Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is brought to you by Bluefish Design in Tempe, Arizona. Bluefish Design is a young, fun, hip, fresh ad agency that will take your company to the next level. They'll work with you on branding, logo, interactive and digital media, whatever you need to get going. They'll work with big developers and maybe even some little podcasters like us. So check them out, www.bluefish.com, that's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode, all about all the wine movies out there, Rudy Kay, His Scandal, and why Italians and Barbaresco shoot cannons at clouds. So we really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome. <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome. You, oh my God. Such imagine, imagine having like a monster truck beginning though. Like, yeah. Be, welcome, welcome, welcome. Today, monstrous wine. Monday, Monday, Monday. It's the podcast of spilling the truth. They will wreck your face on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Palate crushing wines. <laughs> Acid so high it melts your face. I feel, Dude, that'd be awful. I feel like we have to get that guy to do an intro for us. One time? Yeah. No, just have like a setup one. Like, <laughs> just We're going to be like those guys on the radio who hit a button and it's like, Bam, bam, bam. But I think having a fun, catchy intro is really nice. Like, and even something like that, like it appeals to our generation. Like we all know that we've all heard on public TV, the monster truck advertisements. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't really, I'm what, 10 years younger than you at this point, nine years younger. I I've seen it like a couple times. I don't think anybody younger than me or honestly any kids growing up now have heard monster truck rallies. Maybe in like the South. I guess. Yeah. I don't think you can include Arizona with the rest of the country. We yeah. live in our own little bubble out here. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a motocross one like once a year where they're like, motocross race this week at, you know, University of Phoenix Stadium. Get out there. Because it used to be, well, nowadays we have Netflix, Amazon Prime. You have so many other. Oh, non-commercial based things. Exactly. Where you were subjected before to such horrible commercials. And some of those local commercials were hilarious, especially that's, the monster truck ones. That's funny, man. Because like, now I'm thinking about that. The Netflix and Hulus and all the streaming services that don't have commercials if you pay for it it's killing the the voiceover people the you yeah. know the uh the billy mays here by oxyclean and and the monster truck guy and True. all those guys are you can't are do infomercials do yeah infomercials are going away nobody's slap, up at three four in the morning slap chop you slap chop <laughs> by the tv guy channel slap chop i mean but i mean qvc is a big thing there's they don't do QVC for like uh, Netflix or Amazon. They should have like a live streaming something. I bet you they're, yeah, like a live streaming channel for QVC. Because did did we just already invent something in the beginning of every episode? <laughs> because the people who watch QVC will watch that for hours on end, and I know that there's a lot of people watching. I mean, there's people hundreds of millions of dollars a year get spent on QVC. Like, we make jokes about it, but... Dude, there's YouTube channels of people making errors on QVC, like the guy who climbed the ladder and accidentally fell through the fake window on the other side because he couldn't prop it up against something that could hold his weight. The Did you ever see the one where the guy was selling samurai swords and he was swinging it and chopping around and, like, the samurai sword dislodged and stabbed himself in the shoulder? <laughs> My God. And he just... He kept going, too. He's like, I just hurt myself. I just stabbed. And he's bleeding down. He's like... But I got to keep going on. You're like, no, dude, you need to go to a hospital. I mean, it used to be such a thing with infomercials where after, like, what, 11 p.m., everything went infomercial. Yeah, yeah pretty much everything. And the good ones didn't 
you didn't know you're watching an infomercial for about eight or nine minutes in when you're like, oh my God, there hasn't been a commercial. Oh shit. Oh, I'm a watching commercial. a commercial. <laughs> like some of those are really good. They're tricky. So I actually learned about this in my music school. There's a, there's also the other ones where you don't realize you're watching a commercial, but it is because it's a movie and or a TV show and there'll be like a Coca-Cola facing you. And then that's the advertising. You just don't realize that it. it's super subliminal. So it's there, but real tiny. It's like in a, you ever seen those, uh, Wine Enthusiast does it a lot now. Wine Enthusiast Magazine has it where you think you're reading an article, but at the very bottom, it's like promotion and real small writing. There was something about, you know, the movie Demolition Man? Is that the one with the, uh, hold on, let me get this one. Um, oh my God, Wesley Snipes? Yes. Yeah, okay. Correct. I, could, I picture the hair. So uh, Taco Bell, I believe, had won the chain wars, they said, and Taco Bell was the only restaurant that they had in the future, <laughs> and there was just one restaurant. Well, in the Australian cut of that, they don't. it's not Taco Bell. It's something else. It's, they've actually edited it out from being Taco Bell to being like Pizza Hut or something. Dude, that's so funny. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> Product placement. I mean, if you... If Product placement, yeah, that's if, the term I was looking for. If you're really good at it and you get into an iconic movie in the right spot, you now have something forever. Just like Reese's Pieces being in E.T. Did did you just say Reese's Pieces? Yeah, Reese's Pieces. Reese's Pieces? Yes. But you say Pieces? Yeah, Reese's Pieces. Always <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, have. Excellent. So I, you think I mispronounce things. <laughs> so, but those in You're e right, it's e well known. Like yeah. everyone knows those. Like or um, oh, I just dropped this ball. I had one for a second. They'll come back later. But yeah, the Reese's Pieces one makes sense too, especially because now kids will associate that at that time with that movie. And if I remember right, the product placements from the Will Ferrell movie. The car, NASCAR one. Talladega Nights. Yes. The Wonder Bread car. They didn't pay for that. That was all the, they actually did that as a movie thing. And they actually asked the company, I think, to pay for it. And they're like, no, we're not doing that. I'm like, well, we're going to do it anyways. Is that okay? And they're like, sure. Yeah, probably. I mean, if you're, if you're big enough and you say, hey, we're not going to pay you to do it. We're just going to do it. I'd imagine a company like, okay, yeah, go ahead and use our name in that way. Because otherwise, if you're a terrible movie and you bash on somebody, they'll probably sue you for something. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, Especially Wonder Bread. It's weird, too, because then some products can give you an idea of something totally separate and you associate it with, like, if I say polar bears during Christmas time, what do you think? Of course, Coca-Cola. Exactly. See, something like that. So, uh, yeah, and everybody sees, like, polar bears, like, oh, now that all of a sudden you think of a Coke. Because those were, like, the cutest commercials when they first came out, and you also got hammered by them all yeah. the time. I mean, for the longest time, when you thought of a Chihuahua, you thought of Taco Bell before you did Paris Hilton. <laughs> I still think of Taco Bell. Yeah. The little thing. The, yo, yo quiero Taco Bell. Yo quiero Taco Bell. Yeah. <laughs> they had a whole thing for that for a while. I think it was the very first thing I knew how to say in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Subway got screwed because now they think of Jared, they think of pedophilia instead of Subway. Ooh, too soon. <laughs> He's in prison. It's fine. <laughs> Ouch. He's not going to hear this anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, prison justice is crazy. And I bring this up because Whitey Bulger just got killed like a couple weeks ago in prison. He's one of the most notorious mobsters ever. Ever. I mean, he ran the the Boston mob. And, I mean, they had a couple movies made after him. I mean, famous movies. That's a, the Departed. The Departed was, was like, super loosely based, but closer and realistically based was the one with Johnny Depp. What was that? Black Black Mass. Mm, yeah, yeah. I forget the name of it, but yeah. That was more like actually what he was like. Apparently, so that guy was like ninety years old, 
in prison, they cut out his tongue and they, well, they tried to cut out his tongue and they gouged out his eyes. Uh, it's something they used to do to old school rats like 50 years ago or 80 years ago. Like when someone got caught ratting somebody out and they went to prison, they cut out their tongue in prison. It's crazy that shit still goes down today. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously all those old mob people went to prison and never said a word. And they were like, this guy got out and I can't believe he got to do all this thing. To-. And he ratted everybody out. He used to be an FBI informant. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, that's just crazy. So what are we going to relate Whitey Bulger to in advertising? <laughs> Tongue clippers? No, oh my God, no. <laughs> Prison sentencing, basically. So so John brought a really cool old wine with him today? Yeah, so I uh, I dug this one out of the cellar randomly, and uh, I, I'd never seen it before, but I had bought it from a guy's collection. Like, amongst all the wines, this one bottle was in there. And it's uh, it's from Joseph Phelps. I don't know when they stopped making this. Probably could have looked into it a while ago. But uh, Joseph Phelps made it. It's called La Mistrelle. Is that that right? Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. It's it's from Monterey, and it's a blend of Cab, Carignan, Alicante Boucher. What else is in that? Uh, This this has, uh, let's see, includes 56% Syrah, 32% Grenache, 7% Carignan, 3% Petite Syrah, 2% Alicante, and 0% Cabernet. I was like, I said Cab, and I was like, it's not right, but I can't stop. (laughs) I know. I was going to get to it. I was going to try and work that into the old breakdown of the varietals. So it's 2002. Which is crazy that, I mean, a Monterey wine, you don't see too many Monterey wines 16 years old. Yeah. Also from, I wonder when Joseph Phelps was down there doing this project, whatever this is. I mean. Because it's not an estate project, I don't believe. Well, it is produced and bottled by. Yeah. And they definitely clearly don't do it anytime now since they have all the Pinot Noir from uh, that Freestone Occidental area. But yeah, so 2002, it's a 16-year-old you know, Rhone style blend, basically. It's uh... so what's really unique about this is actually the bottle. You could tell is a custom bottle. Um, it's got a really long neck to it. Uh, the I don't know. It's almost like a Bordeaux bottle that would be the the fat part is squat and the top part is longer. Yeah. And then there's embossed the M, kind of like in cursive across the front of it. It's actually really really cool packaging. Um, honestly, it's cost effectiveness to do a bottle like this. It's got to be expensive, especially this. And I'll take a picture of it later, but yeah, the way this thing is in, in Boston to here, this M with the line that goes up and around it, it's such a, it's a crazy looking bottle for what I imagined back in 2002. So let's say this came out in 2004. It's probably like 15 bucks, maybe. I mean, and I will say it's actually smart to, the way this bottle is designed because some people do these fancy bottles. They come out with stuff like the pirate wine or they come out with stuff like mm-hmm. uh Suave had come out with those little stout bottles. Some of these different bottles, they don't fit in your collections. This one did not fit in the shelf. Okay. Cause I was actually thinking that it might because it's at least universal. Cause like, well, look at it from this angle and it's actually wide in the middle. It's like bowling ball shaped almost, bowling ball pin shaped. You can see it's wide here, so therefore it just didn't fit. Plus the neck is so long, it was pushing into the other bottles and kind of like splitting them. That's why you wanted to open it because it's didn't exactly Get it out fit. of my cellar. I was losing two more spaces. But that's something that I think producers actually should take into consideration when coming up with some alternate packaging because collectors 
ultimately that's what you want. You want your wine to go into a collector's cellar. If you're making a great bottle, the person making a three dollar bottle of wine doesn't isn't looking to put their wine into no. a cellar. But this is a wine that obviously wanted to be cellared. Well, some of these people that make higher end wines or collector wines put them in bottles and packaging that don't fit in your cellars. Yeah. People, most people have their cellars set up to either fit Bordeaux or Burgundy bottles. And it seems mostly like Burgundy's the best ones for it. But I mean, I've had a couple that are these fat, huge, like Napa cabs that weigh what feels like five pounds. And they take up three spaces because it, you can't put anything around it. It like, literally pushes bottles out of the way. And it's really obnoxious. What's that crazy Pinot Noir that Matt opens for us? The Gypsy Canyon? The, yes. I've got a couple of those bottles now. Those are crazy bottles. Those it, are. It looks like something that a pirate would... It would have been stuck on a pirate boat. Yeah, yeah. that they put a note in and throw it overboard. Like Yeah, even the coloring and the wax on it looks like it's a thousand years old. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's also probably the best Pinot Noir I've ever had from California, so we'll do that one day. You have to. It's awesome. But there's another one, too, that really crazy bottle that I opened up, the uh, Gattinara one from uh, Chavaglini. Yeah, I don't... Well done. Yeah. Okay, if I said that right. Anyways, it's... Uh, I, I can't even describe the shape. Just Google it. It's the weirdest bottle ever, and it was supposedly designed to be a decanter for the bottle so that when you pour the wine out, when you hold it purposely, all the sediment catches in this one part, and therefore you can get all the wine out of the bottle. But again, it's the most inconvenient bottle ever made. <laughs> so I watched a movie the other night about wine. I've seen a number of there's them. There's only 12 of them. So eh, there's a few more. Was now. it a movie or a documentary? I think that, well, I think a lot, a lot of the movies that are documentaries, they're kind of like in between now. You know, you have something like, um, uh, not sideways, but the one bottle shock. Bottle shock, because those are movies. bottle shock wasn't a documentary, but it was based on. It's like any other based on true story thing, right? Air quotes. But I guess yeah, the the one about Rudy, mm -hmm. which is called Sour Grapes. Sour Grapes. You've seen it? Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, it's pretty um, unbelievable. <laughs> it, it really is unbelievable that he could pull that off. Um. It's. I'm looking at like a packaging like this. Like what he did to fake those bottles was really unbelievable. Yeah, and the ending. Uh, I won't spoil the ending, but how he did it is more amazing to me than anything else. Because you would assume he had this f like whole factory down and like an entire team of people doing these things, and it's just him. You know, it's got to be like an artist. It's it's like that crazy artist that's, you know, in a small room in Paris or in Spain that is putting out million-dollar pieces of artwork flawlessly. You're like, how is that guy just sitting in his bedroom, like, in his underwear, like, painting these world-class masterpieces? Yeah. I mean, some people just have some crazy talent. Yeah. All right, so wine movies. We have... So wine movies, when I think of movies, not documentaries, are both sideways. So, somebody who has never seen a movie about wine. And well, I'm not but but it's so vastly different. Like if you watch Sideways and then watch Psalm, you'd be like, that's not clearly the same thing. But there's they're both wine based movies. Yeah. They they're 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 not action shoot 'em up. They're not necessarily love stories. They're not Well, yeah, but you're not gonna be like, oh, an action movie is a gun movie and watch a documentary about guns. So Okay. <laughs> You have Psalm, which I guess going more of a documentary route. Yeah, and you got three of those now. So I never did see two or three. I haven't seen three. 
I've so seen two. I heard two wasn't as good as one. Yeah, it was um, probably forced. I don't feel forced. They tried to do a little more. So I, I, let me let me start from the beginning. I like Psalm One because it showed like how dedicated these people were to getting their master psalm. Psalm Two is mostly like, okay, now we're going to show you like the wines and sort of how they're made and sort of how it's done. And it it felt clunky. Like they try to be like, oh, here's what the psalms are doing. Here's how they're still trying to be psalms. Here's the restaurants they work at, and here's how wines are made. It's it kind of felt like, all right, pick a lane. All right. So for anybody who has not seen this movie, um, I thought it was a great way to showcase what somebody is going through, trying to get their psalm degree or get get their certification. Uh, it follows a number of people that are studying to get their master psalm. And what it takes as they go through theory, tasting, all the different uh, things you have to do to pass your test. Uh, I don't want to ruin what happens, but it's it really shows the average person how tough it is to become a master sommelier. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a matter of just sitting down, getting drunk with your friends. And it's not a matter of sitting down, just studying flashcards. It's everything it, about the it business. It is a and dedication. When you're getting your degree in, say, math or language, there's a right and a wrong answer to everything. Whereas in wine, things are subjective. And trying to taste wines and guess what's in it and describe what's in it, I might describe it differently than the way you describe it, but both of us are both going to be correct. Whereas... Someone who has never gotten in the wine business knows nothing about it could watch some and be like, okay, that might be something I want to do. It's, it's a great look into what those people do. Yeah. Whereas now you have something along the lines of The Red Obsession. The Red Obsession was a documentary based on the Bordeaux business and the explosion of the Bordeaux business in China. Yeah. And their love of certain types of it and what happens. And... I was actually thinking about the Red Obsession with the Rudy movie, Sour Grapes, because there was a part in there where they say that an empty bottle of Chateau Lafitte sells for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Mm -hmm. Whereas a guy was saying, I go to a restaurant when I'm done having my bottle that I brought with me, I either make the waiter break it in front of me, smash it, or I take it home with me. Yeah. Because empty bottles sell for a lot on the black market. Yeah, I mean, there. if you could clean that bottle up and didn't get any drop of anything on that label, I mean, honestly, even if you could save the cork, there it's so easy to put it back in if you have a corking machine. I could I could throw some... The only trick is the foil, and that's not hard to replicate, especially in China. <laughs> I could throw some Chateau Damiano on there and... You could literally put red dye into a bottle and nobody would know as long as the cork was in there and there was a foil over it. So it's it's and especially in a place like China where everybody's trying to drink more and more and more and more wine, it's super easy to deceive, you know, especially with old bottles where there's literally almost no way of knowing it's fake. Modern bottles are a lot harder to fake. Um, so like for instance, when I get my wine bottles, there's laser engraved numbers. You cannot see them that well. They're on the bottle though, but if you hold it just right, you'll see all these numbers along this bottle at the very base of it, and it's laser engraved in. So you could track that bottle from the day it left the uh, facility to where it got sold to, to wherever it ends up. So you can be like, oh yeah, this bottle was definitely sold to Joseph Phelps, and we know that they put their wine in it, and then after there it went off. 
So if you got a bottle of 2017 Joseph Phelps and it's not laser engraved, it's probably a fake bottle. So there are better counterfeit measures now, but yeah, the most expensive wines are all the old ones. People spending, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars on a burgundy bottle from 1970, whatever, and it's amazing. That's gonna be rough. Amazing what they get away with. It's gonna be rough to be the person that works at the auction house that actually has to go through and check the provenance on these wines Mm -hmm. and see to come up and be like, hey, no, this is fake. This is real. This is suspect. This this might not be real. And they actually have to go back to the person that you're auctioning after a lot and say, I have a feeling your lot is fake. And yeah, this, this tell is somebody w- that this is why I think it's fake. Yeah, I mean I saw a thing where I don't I don't know if it was a documentary I saw or just a random like tidbit in the news, but uh one of the biggest wine buyers in the world is one of the Koch brothers and or Koch brothers, depending on how you want to say it. And um he was trying to auction off a bunch of wines and he sent they, they sent a guy into his cellar and they were like, we, th- we don't think these are real burgundies. And he had bought them from some guy who bought them from that Rudy guy. So they basically were like, yeah, sorry. Man. He sued Sotheby's or Christie's, one of those auctions, for millions of dollars because they had sold him all these fake burgundies. So he was on the cover of like Spectator or one of those magazines mm-hmm. a yeah. number of years ago. And that's how I actually had heard about him was that he was trying to lead the charge against all these fake wines. And this was before the whole Rudy thing came out. But yeah, in the movie, I think they said he started. He had over 6 million in wines of just Rudy's in his cellar. Yeah, it's where it started was him. He was like the push that I think he was like finally the guy who pushed it over the cliff and said, we got to do something about this. And it's, uh, it's crazy. I mean, the ripple effects still to this day are out there. They have entire teams of people who will look at every single solitary thing over a bottle just to make sure it's real in any way, shape, or form. And you are right. Nowadays, they can do holograms and laser engraving, and they could, they could probably put a piece of electrical filament in the label that has a charge that they could yeah. put a scanner over and be like, okay... There's cesium two twenty three in this. That's and that's. I was gonna bring that one up. That's perfect to bring. Uh, uh yeah, cesium one. I think it's one three seven. I yeah. Either way, <laughs> I'm I'm going with one three seven. We should play that game. And uh, if it was a wine made before, or well, there was paintings. That's how they knew paintings. It wasn't wine. I'm sorry. It's uh they knew a painting was made before 1945 because there was no cesium in it, and anything now has it in it, so they could tell if something was fake or not by that. I think we had this discussion about, you know, how are we going to have the future of knowing if a wine's real or, you know, if that's actually the juice that's in there. And I, I figure somebody will do it one day. I see it coming because we already have a market for it. The Corvin, that needle pulling all that wine out, somebody someday will have a needle that puts wine in. So, and they'll be able to remove the juice of something from a bottle, drink it, and then put some crap back into it and then go auction that thing off, and nobody will have any idea until they open up the bottle, and it's just colored water. All right, so you, you have a bottle of wine that was one of the most special bottles you've ever had in your entire life, and 10 years later, you're searching for the same vintage, that same bottle, and you come up with it, and you open it, and it brings you back to that moment, and you're just enthralled. Maybe it doesn't taste quite exactly the same. It's been 15 years, mm. but it has all those memories, and every little bit of it, you're just intrigued by it, and you could feel it in your toes that you're trying this wine that you had 15 years ago that was so special to you. And then it turns out that that wine was fake, that it was not the same wine. But the wine you just consumed brought back all those memories, all those feelings. It did everything you wanted it to do. Yeah. So who's to say it was not 
I mean, effective. Yeah. Like it's it's subjective that's, in a that's way. That's a crazy thing. I mean, you're making a very good point because that wine you had then is not going to be the same wine you have even a year later. So while yes, it's a fake product in the bottle, the everything else checked off for you. Brought your memory back. You had a good time. Maybe you drank with some friends and they all went, oh, it's amazing. And they love it. I mean, honestly, there's that one guy in Red Obsession that he hits on. Remember he's driving around in his car with that really old Syrah uh, from Cote Roti. And he's like, guys, I swear this is real. And like the one Psalm's like, that's not a Syrah. And then he brought it to a friend of his and goes, yeah, that's delicious. And the other, he brought it to another guy. He's like, no, that's not real either. He was trying to convince himself that he had purchased a good bottle of wine, a real bottle of Cote Roti. But it's kind of like, this is going to sound really weird, but like, who, who cares? Like, you liked it in the moment. You were loving that wine. Yeah. Yeah. Be- it's not it, the one you, but if you I may have not have paid for maybe the actual wine that was in it. If I opened it and it gave me every ounce of joy I was expecting to get out of it, and then somebody told me later that it was fake, I still got all the joy I was expecting. I still got what I paid for. And it. what if it tastes good? Yeah. Like, what if it actually tastes like a good wine? I don't know. That's 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 really weird to me because I can't and I, I don't think I'll ever be at a point where I would relate to if I bought twenty thousand dollars of burgundy because I'll, I'll never, ever do it. But I get where, you know, like, let's say you buy an original Picasso and it turns out, you know, you have for 30 years and every time somebody walks in, look at this Picasso. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Oh, it's so good. I love it on the wall. And then somebody comes up to you one day and goes, by the way, that was made by a guy in his underwear in a basement. Yeah. And you spent $10 million on this picture. I mean, for the years you had it, it was serving its purpose of looking real. Did you buy it because you wanted people to see it and so you could sell it to people? Or did you want it because it was actually Picasso's thing and that's the only thing you cared about? So I guess these wines to me are like kind of in that same boat where you bought the wine for what reason? Did you want to drink it with your friends and have an amazing time? Did you want it to remind you of something from a long time past? Did you? Because every time I buy a wine, most of the time, I've never tried that wine. I really most likely haven't tried most of the wines I've purchased. You know, maybe 30% of them I had before, but I bought it because I was like, that looks like a really cool temperature. So I don't even know what I'm getting, and I spent money on it. So these guys spending millions of dollars, which is very few, and they got tricked. I do feel bad. I do. But what if you drank that wine, just like you were saying, and it checked 99 of 100 boxes, and the only box that wasn't the one that was checked was that it was actually the wine made from that one vineyard? It's it's weird. It's a weird thing. It, it really is. I, I was thinking about this when I was watching that. and the, Yeah, that's a really good point. This whole faking of wines, because some of these people are trying to recreate a moment, and if you can recreate that moment for them, and they paid the money for it, I mean, yeah, it's, it's wrong, and it should never be done, but I don't know. It's, it's a weird feeling as I was watching this movie thinking about this, because... A guy who bought that wine for $20,000, enjoyed it with his friends for $20,000, went to bed completely happy, a year later is now wondering, well, it was maybe fake, blah, 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 blah. Well, you just had the experience, and you you got everything you wanted out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, it really is totally one thing if it's not, like like I was saying earlier, like if there was water in it or something, then you could absolutely mind, but... Yeah, I mean, not to ruin vinegar. what Rudy did. We're not gonna, we won't ruin what Rudy did, but well, how he pub- put wine back into it. I mean, it's been public knowledge for a long time. He's in jail and everything like that. Yeah. But, I mean, he was ran- blending wines and putting it into bottles to make it close enough to taste like 
Now the I original one. now I'm actually blown, which is so talented. I'm by actually the way. I was gonna say that I'm blown away by his talent that he could actually go and taste this wine and then go back and blend nine different wines to recreate it and come up with something close enough that he could fool people that are professionals. Yeah, he 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 would show up and drink with people like real professionals all the time. And they, in the in the video, they were showing him talk and he's pouring for all these people and they're all, oh, we love it. This is great. This tastes amazing. Blah, 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 blah. And you know what probably happened? The one, let's say he did this with 20 people. The one guy who sat there was like, there's no fucking way. There's no way this is burgundy, but he's going to keep his mouth shut because 19 people are going, this is amazing. It's so good. Because one thing you and I've realized that it's really hard for people to talk shit about something that is very expensive when it comes to wine. Mm-hmm. If I showed up with a wine that was $20 and it was shit, everybody <laughs> would be have no problems telling me it was shit. <laughs> if I show up with a... Damien showing up with his yellowtail again. <laughs> if I show up with a, a bottle that is a $10,000 bottle that I have this long story on how I got it and we all sit around and drink it, it's going to be an ego stroking fest and everyone's going, oh my oh, God, so the good. hints of, uh, and then everyone's going to leave going, did you really like that line? No. Did you? No. Oh my God. You, you I, and I yes. had that one moment, that one time on a certain event where people won't be named, but we drank an old bottle, an old French bottle. And it was a it was, dog and pony show. It was a dog and pony where show. Everybody was like, let, like, that is the best wine. Oh my God. I just blah, 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 it's blah, so blah. And delicious. it was not good. That was so funny because that's where, like, that was, uh, I, I don't know how long ago that was, but that's when you and I looked at each other and both, like, like, we didn't, I don't think you even said anything. We just looked at each other and just had that look of, like, what the fuck was that? That was not good. <laughs> One of my friends used to always say that Bordeaux gets a free pass. And I understand it now. It's like, oh, this wine is shit. It's from California. What? Who cares? It's just shit. Oh, this wine's shit, but it's Bordeaux. Oh, but it's Bordeaux. Like, no. If it's if it doesn't taste good, it doesn't taste good. Well, we had that literally the other night with that Burgundy that we opened, and uh, I didn't I didn't think it was good. I just it, it was my taste. I was not. It was a 03. Uh, now this is a village. I, it was like a village, just kind of basic Burgundy, and it tasted like it wasn't corked. It wasn't you know like cooked or anything, but it just. It didn't hold up. It, it was did. not aged. It fell apart. Well, it was, I described, you know, that night I thought I put it very, very well is that, you know, every wine is getting better and better and better as it goes up the hill. It keeps going up the hill. It's getting better and better yeah. and better. You want to drink the wine at the peak. That is the ultimate goal of every wine consumer that wants to drink their wine at their peak. Yeah. Sometimes you consume it on the hill on the way up and you know it's getting good, but you know it's going to, has a chance to get a little better. Yes. Other times you consume it just as if it's going over the peak and you're like, I should I should have consumed this a couple months ago or last year. It's still good, but it's just going over. Yeah. Other times it's like this wine where it's somebody has pushed it off the cliff and it's holding onto that stick that's like eighteen feet down, and 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 it's pretty much over the cliff, but it's not there yet. And that's that wine we had. It was hanging on for dear life. But it's screwed. It's going down regardless. There's no there's no rescuing it. There's no safety ropes. So it's. So Over real the- quickly, this bottle is from that same collection that you and I are drinking, yeah. this this Joseph Phelps. So the guy cellared everything well. So it just goes to show that an 03 Burgundy from this village, and this isn't, you know, a, a Grand Cru or a Premier Cru. This is just the village blend. It just, 15 years later, wasn't making it. It was a wine that was probably meant to drink in 10 to 12 years, max, maybe 10 to 14 years, and yeah. we drank it at 15 that's yeah. why it was holding onto the stick. To, to the stick, yeah. In my mind, I'm like, that's a great visual for and, it. And yeah. if 
we drank it next year, it would taste like the the Russian roulette wines in the box in the other room. <laughs> They'd be just toast. Yeah. Whereas if we drank it last year, it might have been stunning. Yeah. Well, know? and the vice versa that. So at this dinner, we had opened up a lot of wine. We had one of those holy crap nights. And we had opened up a couple Peter Michael. Um, and we did the Le Pavot. And we had a 96. And what was it? A 99? 96, yeah. 99 Le Pavot. Yeah. And which is we have one of those. That's not a hundred percent cap, right? It's a blend, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not an expert on Peter Michael. I'm not either. But the '96 was amazing. It was so good, but it was definitely on the back end of that hill we're talking about. Like right as you know, if you're in a roller coaster and you're in the front car, right as you start to look over, like you know it's coming, but you're just barely over. And the '99 to me, I thought was amazing. Like I was, I think that was the peak. The '99 was at the top of the peak, waving arms up, waving a flag, like taking taking a selfie. (laughs) Yes, yes, getting ready. It was shining. It was. It was like I am hot, beautiful, sexy. Look at me. Yeah. And then James opened. What was it? A 2010 a Spirit Pavot or whatever it was. And that was not ready to go. That's the tail end still going up the back end of that roller coaster, waiting, just watching the selfie people take it up front. And yeah, I mean, honestly, those those wines were so good. We had a night. It was a BYOB night at a local restaurant that is the best BYOB restaurant in Phoenix. It's one of the best overall restaurants in Phoenix, even if you decide just to drink water. Um, It's a price-fixed menu, and it changes per weekly. Um, They do tweaks every single day, but the, the... there's big changes usually every week, depending on what they're catching, what farmers, what's in season, that kind of stuff. So we started off with three different champagnes. Oh, yes. yeah, because we ended on a fourth. We just kept drinking champagne. I kept yeah. looking at Andre, and he's just like, you want to drink more champagne? And I'm like, champagne? yeah. He's like, I could just drink champagne all night. And I'm like, let's do we it. <laughs> we drink a lot of champagne. It's weird when the best wine of the night was a 2001 Konigsgard Syrah. That was, that was like my least favorite wine of the night. Yeah, the Konigsgard, it, it, it was clunky compared to everything else. Yeah. That was my, it had a place in another tasting or another dinner. Unfortunately, this dinner and it, the the menu that night was very refined. Yes. It was not a, a rustic menu. It was definitely a more sexier, silkier, menu and so and so the Kungsgard was a little bit smoky it was clunky it was big it worked really well with my second course which was like a pastrami type course it was like a homemade something pastrami it it definitely overpowered it it overpowered everything my steak (laughs) yeah exactly so i thought that the the uh, peter michaels were drinking fantastic i I, we had a peter michael chardonnay as well i love the shard and i didn't have a chance to really I never went back to it. I, I wanted to go back to it. Yeah. I never did. I, I, I got the my, opening taste, and I was like, wow, that's way too oak. My problem that I had was that we had too much champagne in the beginning. And, yeah. and bubbles go to my head, and all of a sudden I become rock star Damien. <laughs> and I am not paying attention to the intricacies of these beautiful wines. I just want to be a rock star. Maybe, maybe we should just start ending our nights on champagne <laughs> instead of beginning it. I know you're supposed to open bubbles to start, but you know what? Maybe yeah. we might have to we might have to readjust. Because I said that to Andre too. It's what, like what else did we have? Because we had the champagne, we had the the Peter Michael Shard and that Burgundy at the same time. The, the O one Ravana. Oh the, my god! The star that's of the whole right. night. 
which it it really Fuck. was. It that really was good. It really was. I mean the 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 Peter that was, that was the that was the best cab. It's so good. I it just blows my mind. You know me. I'm. I'm a bitter old vet when it comes to Cabernets. I'm just like, Arr. you know, I don't like any. I've never liked any old cabs. The Peter Mikers were killing it, mm-hmm. and that Ravana was so good. So we'll open up another one on the show someday. Maybe we can have Doctor Ravana Dr. on the Ravana show or something. Comes on, that'd be great. <laughs> but it was the inaugural vintage of Ravana, 2001. 2001. Yeah. So 17 years old. Jesus, we drank yeah. some old wines that night. That was a good night. And then we finished it off with uh, two uh, Baron Auschleys. Don't remember. Barely remember it. Yeah. I remember cheese and talking to the guys next to me. Did we have cheese? I did. We did. We had a cheese course. That's right. And then talking to the. Oh, we also had dessert too. We had like an apple fritter or something. Yeah. Talking to Barbara and uh, Richard behind us and their wives. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because then we were out front for a while doing whatever. But yeah, man, those those are always fun. And. you know, there's there's a there's another good documentary that starts to get into the food and wine pairing, and uh, for life of me, I can't remember what it was. But the guy makes he makes nothing but wine documentaries. He's done I want to say four or five now, and they're awesome, awesome documentaries. And I think, and I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but I just think I think he was also part of the chef's table program, and that's how they got the food part in there. But the guy does this documentary, and it's called The Year In. And so he spends the entire year in a certain region. Um, and he does a year in Burgundy, uh, a year in Champagne, a year in Port. Those are the three I've seen so far. Um, and he does a lot of, you know, from spring uh, to summer to autumn, and then obviously to harvest in fall. And he always starts it with a little bit of the harvest, and then he breaks it straight into, like, how the year goes. And that's when they kind of parent some, like, food and what the families do and how they celebrate and how they get ready. And honestly, watching it gives you one of the most in-depth details of how certain years go in certain regions. So uh, the first one, the one that got me into a lot of these documentaries was a year in Burgundy. And they were kind of going through the vineyards and they followed two houses, one really well known and then one subtly known. And then they'd all get together and have these big, amazing, giant family parties with food and everything. And they showed the, from top to bottom why they grow this vineyard this way and how they separate it these way and all these amazing things. And I think those are probably, when it comes to being informative about an entire growing season, those are probably the best three documentaries you can watch for growing and wine making. Like how the Psalm shows you the... Um, the aspects of how to become a psalm and like it gives you like a little taste of what it's like. The red obsession shows you how France France adapting to China and sour grapes shows you how Rudy screwed the market up with all this fake stuff. This will give you a wine making aspect of it. And I think those ones are really cool. Yeah, there's. I think we're gonna see a lot more wine documentaries and wine type movies coming out as it becomes more and more popular in America. Mm-hmm. Um, as the, the next generation becomes wine drinkers and moves up and has money to start buying wines. Also, they're, they want to be more informed. Oh, because, because sommelier is becoming... It, a restaurant used to be all about the chef. You went to a restaurant to see the chef. Now you go see a restaurant because you're going to go see a sommelier. You're like, oh, I'm going to go see Raj Parsberg. And you're going to here locally. You're going up to Bourbon State because you want to go meet Jason. Or you're going to go to... This restaurant, because you're going to want to meet the sommelier that was on the the Psalm movie. Yeah, you're right. They're they're almost like a little they're like, be- subtle celebrity. They're becoming the new celebrities. I think in the next ten or fifteen years, there's going to be sommeliers that are so well known that they're taking over the restaurant world. There's going to be there will be reality shows. 
based on wine and sommeliers. There will be tasting and stuff like that and, and part of that of a reality show. I think that there will be restaurants that are more restaurants that are owned by psalms instead of chefs. Mm-hmm. Stuff like, you know, like the Michael Mina concept was a combination with Michael Mina and Raj Parr and Andre Agassi. But I, I think you're nailing a, uh, like a real true thing because you know what I'm seeing now? And I think where you're talking about is like an infancy of something that's growing with definitely a high projection. Um, you notice how much cooking shows you see now? There's a million cooking shows. I mean, Sarah every night watches Chopped and she loves it. Uh, and then, you know, that's just a cooking competition. And then obviously, I think one of the best documentaries I've seen is the chef ta- Chef's Tables on uh, Netflix. They're awesome to see what people are making with food. I think eventually you're going to see it with, you know, beer, liquor, and wine. It's mostly just instead of it being food, it'll be obviously just drinks in general. And I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing brewing competitions like, all right, guys, you get these hops, these grains, this things, make a beer. And then two weeks, and then, you know, with great cut and editing, it makes it look like the beers were done in three days. But like eight weeks later, they go, all right, guys, now we're going to have you panel of judges with the guy from Stone, the owner of Constellation, and then this other person, and we'll see who makes the best beer. And they do that. And then later on, maybe they'll have a competition where, and I, I thought this would be really cool if you take, uh, all right, guys, uh, we got four winemakers. You get this vineyard site, make this wine. You pick when you want, you do what you want. And so they show the vineyard site, how it's all done, blah, blah, blah. And over a couple, like a year-long period, well, in this case, it'd be three by the time the bottle gets released, they'll show how it's made, why they're putting in American oak, what the winemaker talks about. And over a long period of time, then they'll eventually sit down with the three bottles out there in front of like uh, Galani from Venice, maybe Robert Parker, another guy, and they'll all taste and say, you made the best from this site, you made the best you know, the way you combine the oak and the wine and blah, 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 and go from there. I think that'd be a really cool competition. I'd like, I'd, I'd watch that. It'll take a very long time to put together, but yeah. that'd be a cool documentary. There's a place right now for the wine professional to go Hollywood. And I think that Psalm is just the the tip of the iceberg on I that. I think it's totally tip of the iceberg. So, so okay, so we have... They're the uh, promoters, man. They're the Don Kings of the boxing world. So, so for <laughs> so the wine world. for documentaries, you have the uh, a, a year ends. We have Sour Grapes, Red right Obsession. Obsession. There's another one out right now on Netflix that I watched called Decanted, and it follows Heidi Barrett, Aaron Pot. I think it's Aaron Pot. Yeah, Aaron Pot and um, uh, Malka. Uh, Felipe Malka. Felipe Malka's in that. And uh, they basically just kind of go up and down Napa for the year. And then the gentleman who makes Italics, the owner of Italics, is the kind of like a big focus in this movie. Um, and I apologize for not knowing his name. But uh, it's really cool. It shows you Napa kind of through the year. You know, they do a little harvesting. They show how a winery is kind of being built and made and what it takes to make the label. Uh, they show the Napa Valley uh, barrel tasting, you know, where they all get together and somebody buys a barrel and they showcase everything. And they do some good interviews. I, th- I think that's a cool one for Napa. It shows a lot about what's kind of happening with Napa. And then so for non, so we'll call it a mockumentary or based on yeah. loosely on yeah. real life events. We have a bottle shock. This is a good one. I've always movie. loved bottle shock. It's, it's actually a, bit, a good movie. It's like by itself. Even if you're not into the wine business, I think that's such a great movie. It is. It's whimsical. It's fun. It makes you laugh. It makes you cry. There's so many parts in that. I thought that movie top to bottom was so well done yeah absolutely they they nailed the characters they got good people to act in it and it it's just it's just a fun movie to watch and i think actually a huge percentage of people watch that movie not realizing that it really is based on real events like 
the people that like everybody that's being portrayed in that movie is an actual real person. Like Steve's like Alan Rickman's character, Steve Spurrier. That's it's not well, the football coach. Chris Chris Pine is Bo Barrett. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the son of the owner of uh, Chateau Montalena, who married Heidi Barrett. <laughs> yep. So there's... who Who's the guy? The dad. Uh, the dad Barrett. Um, not Michael Douglas. I can't for life me remember that guy's name. Oh, my God. Anyways. But yeah, that's, that's, that's one of those... You know, the first time I watched it, I really enjoyed it. Because then the only other one that most people kind of remember is obviously um, Sideways. Yeah. And of course, Sideways to me was kind of the first... It mm-hmm. was the the one that put the wine movie on the map. Um, it ruined <laughs> Merlot in America. And to be honest, it ruined Pinot Noir in America. It ruined Pinot Noir a lot more than it did Merlot. <laughs> this is the long-term effects because, because of that movie, Pinot Noir became super popular and everybody planted Pinot everywhere. And then all of a sudden you realized five years later, you have a lot of mediocre Pinot growing everywhere. It's how you make giant things like Mayomi. <laughs> Yeah, it's when 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 you Pinot Noir is very specific and they talk about how beautiful it is in that movie, but you can't just grow it anywhere in the world. It's There's, very site specific. It, yeah, it's a fickle grape. And unfortunately, because of the popularity, they just started trying it everywhere, which you have to try it everywhere to see where it works best. I get this. We're in the infantile stages of wine production in America. What it when you consider the global wine production, mm-hmm. we have a hundred years of history. These other countries have really, yeah. thousands of years of history. You know, Paris tasting of 76 was 40 years ago. Yeah. Like the wineries that were being put up against Montalena and stags and whatnot in that have thousands of years of history of making wine. So we're still trying to figure out what works well, but unfortunately that movie killed Merlot for a number of years. But what's happened in the long run is it's made Merlot better because crappy Merlot kind of died off. Died off. A lot of producers that had mediocre Merlot said, I'm going to swap over and do something else. And the Merlot that has mer- matured since then, I think is way better. And I've really been enjoying a lot of Merlot from California. I brought... Uh, Robert Foley Merlot and I brought the Hourglass Merlot to, oh, hourglass. to th- both to Thanksgiving dinner this year. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, both of them. Yeah, I, I think that that's the one thing about Pinot Noir is because it's very site specific. Um, I I do like to see that it's being planted in a lot of cool places. Uh, I've drifted towards a lot of uh, like the far Sonoma Coast area, like that. Fort Ross Sea View in Annapolis. I like. I've had a lot of Russian River ones that slowly are all kind of starting to taste the same, and I don't know if that's just because the weather is doing that, or if they're all just making them over extracted and big. And I'm not really like a crazy fan about it. It is. It's kind of cool because I guarantee, from like today till the time I pass away, I'm going to see some changes in wines that are really cool for America. When and then people are going to start nailing things down a lot which is kind of fun. I mean, a lot of that's going on over the last 10 years where they're saying, okay, you're right. Cabernet doesn't grow well over here. All right. Zimadel does not do good on this hill. All right. Let's get rid of our Pinot and put down something else. Let's put down the white. That yeah. does. I mean, it's, it's trial and error. Unfortunately in the wine business, you can't do it in one year. It's going to take 10 seasons, 10, 20 seasons, and like minimum. Yeah. 30 seasons, generations. 
like Co- you're, to even know how to grow it right and do it. And it blah, blah, blah. There's gonna be stories of like you know, oh, my grandfather had all these problems, my father had all these problems, but I figured it all out, and now it's three generations later. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one nice thing about generational things is, you know, people who were in Burgundy and Bordeaux knew, oh, we got a frost randomly every third generation that was an insane, weird out of nowhere, but they knew how to dealt with it. I mean, you're watching a lot of people right now. I think this is going to be one thing for California they're going to have to deal with in the future is the potential of fires more than anything else. Because bad weather just really doesn't happen in California. It never gets crazy wet. You know, they get all the sunshine in the world. It stays relatively warm. But now they're going to constantly have to be dealing with fires a lot more than any other problem. Like how Burgundy right now has to deal with a lot more hail than any other time they've ever had to. So now, you know, they're going to be talking like, okay, so what do you do when there's a fire? Do you pick early? Like, how do we, how do we combat that? That seems to be like the big thing. Because this is now the third year in a row they've had fires in grape growing regions that are affecting drastically the grapes. Yeah. I mean, you brought up hail. I mean, Burgundy finally has put laws in place that allow nets to protect it. Yeah. Wherefore, they said, we didn't need this for 200 years. Yeah. Because for 200 years, we didn't have this problem every year. But now we're having this problem every year. So what was now outlawed before we have to let allow this and they're allowing nets in place. Yeah. I mean, look at, was it Barolo or is it Barbaresco? And I don't know if they work or not, but they have the hail cannons. <laughs> He's laughing. <laughs> Barbaresco. Yeah. One of the no. funniest freaking stories I've ever heard were the, the, the cannons in Barbaresco. Cause we were dining in Barbaresco and we heard the cannons going off. I mean, it's just like, it's like a war. Like <laughs> you, it's like, boom, 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 boom. And you're like, What's going on? Like, is Napoleon invading? <laughs> like, and this isn't like these are like howitzers going off. Yeah. And so we asked one of the old men. He's like, first of all, it's actually illegal. It's outlawed to do this in Barolo. <laughs> you could only do it in Barbaresco. And they shoot cannons into the clouds to make the clouds go away. <laughs> and I asked one of the old men in the That's town so if it funny. works, and he kind of gave me this look go and said, "That's eh, an excuse to get off work. It's an excuse <laughs> to shoot shit to the yeah, air. It's an excuse to get off from work early and shoot a cannon with your buddies and drink wine. God, that's so fun. <laughs> I wonder how many windows they blow out. Blow. Love Italians. It's oh. awesome. Yeah. Now, granted, I guarantee you back in the day when they started those, is um, they were probably like, Wow, this 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 is theory could work. We could blow up the cannons with sulfur or something or whatever. And now everybody goes, it doesn't work. But you know, why not keep doing that? <laughs> I think it's there's a theory behind it. I think it can work if you do it with enough sulfur. Maybe I think it's one of those things that it might work. Say one out of ten times. Uh, the one guy or, or the one guy it worked for also sold the cannons. <laughs> yes, or or there has to be a ton of clouds for it to work. But if there's one cloud, let's get the cannons. <laughs> They're all concentrating on that one cloud. <laughs> Bob, you think there's a cannon up there or a cloud up there? No. Yep, there's one. Just one. Everybody. Everybody. Do <laughs> you imagine if they had cell phones 300 years ago? Just everybody's calling each other. Everybody starts shooting your cannons. I'm telling you. Like those old like traditions, though. Yeah. It yeah. Was- because the ones that work are obviously working, but that one is that one blows my mind because it's obviously they figured out at some point it didn't work, but like everybody give them like the little like wink and side look like, hey, let's just keep saying that it works. So we keep shooting cannons. You, you know, there's gonna be some old Italians are gonna be like mailing me now, being like with like scientific proof that this works. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it does. I mean, there's well, they've 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 seeded clouds and stuff like that. Like yeah. old farmers used to do it. Yeah. Well, throwing a penny in the well works for some people too. If a billion people do it. <laughs> hey, I shared that post today that said if I share a dollar bill, I don't ever have to work again. <laughs> well, <laughs> God, I hope that works. That's that's one of those things that drives me nuts with like social media and some of the people that I'm related to. Like the people that are like, oh, share this post of this bill and say amen and your everything will be okay the rest of your life. And they share it every day. It's like, oh my God. Every day. It's like, did it not work yesterday? You know what you they did are? You did not realize? You know what they are? They are the... They are the cannon shooters of Barbaresco <laughs> of modern times. <laughs> There's some old live at Piedmont area going, God damn it, they're shooting the cannons again. I'm enough of this. It doesn't work. And I don't know many other regions that do that. Like I don't I don't hear of like the old men in Santorini like out there shooting cannons at like clouds. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about how many places would get a frost like that. There's there's obviously a lot, but not a crazy amount. Like the big ones, so I was in a when I was last time I was Napa, I noticed that one part of this one hill didn't have any of the fans to blow like, you know, the air down and knock the frost out and all of that. And I asked why. And they go, oh, well, that side of the hill isn't exposed to this one gap in the valley, but all the wind comes running through this valley and therefore causes frost. We have to have fans over here. So clearly there's scientific reason for fans. I mean, back in the day, didn't they used to light barrels of oil on fire to keep the vineyard warm so that... <laughs> I know that was a thing. I don't know what they were lighting on fire, but they were doing it so that they could obviously keep frost from going. They've had helicopters in some places come in and blow the air around so it doesn't get frost. So many different regions have different laws and rules and things that are allowed. I mean, some places you can burn sticks. Some places you can't do any burning. Some places you can... I mean, every... Once again, burgundy, the nets. Some places you can't yeah. use nets. You can, like... Yeah, you, you know what? It's kind of weird. You know, if once you put a law on paper... And you're saying, well, we're subject to doing that. We have to do it this way. We have to do it this way. You're hoping that the rest of the time nothing changes. But obviously, the way the climate's changing, you got to start taking on a lot of different techniques of battling what's coming. So, like, I'm intrigued to see what will happen in the future with smoke because clearly that's a huge problem. That'll ruin that'll ruin your entire, not just, not just your vineyard. Hail can take out a vineyard and miss a whole area. Smoke will get everything in the area. Or as global warming changes... Regions that maybe weren't good for growing wine might become good. Ooh, I can't wait to, wait to try London champagne, or, well, I guess English champagne. <laughs> Man, I can't wait to try that there uh, Tennessee wine. Mm, that there Tennessee wine. Don't they just call that whiskey? <laughs> I think they do. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing about America. No matter where you go, you're going to be able to have something. I, I had a rosé from Denver, when I, or uh, from Colorado when I was in Denver. It was actually really, really good. I don't know what it was. I don't know what the grape was, but I just remember thinking to myself, wow, that's actually really tasty. I'm sure that you... Unfortunately, every major region in the world, when you live in a different region, when you have a chance to try what's from that region, it's the mass-produced shit. And what I mean is the people in Europe think of American beer as Budweiser. We think of Italian beer as being Peroni. Peroni. You know, you think of... Belgian beer being like Stella. Uh, oh, yeah. Yellowtail, the Australian wine. There's th These are not great representations of what is actually produced in those regions, though, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. I, I wonder what... I, I would love to see this now. Now that I go like overseas, I want to see what American brands are over there. Like, nothing. What would it be? Like nothing. Beringer? Nothing? Yeah. Very, almost nothing. Um, pretty much the, all stays as, in country? Most of these... 
you, other countries do not and will not consume our wine products. If they do, just like a cocktail at this point. <laughs> if they do, it's a higher end product, just as if. You know, typically, you know, you got the Chateau Lafitte, or you got this. If you're over there, yeah, you can get the Silver Oak. You can get the. That's a terrible representation, though. <laughs> True, but if you're a guy producing a couple thousand cases of something cult collector in Napa, you're not even going to find an exporter to export your product. Yeah. That's, you have much money and time and everything. You're like. But it's crazy because look how much cool crap you represented that like blows my mind. How did you get those? Now, granted, it was probably a case or two, but still. Now, when it comes to European wines, they know that the American market is where it's at. It's all about exporting to America. We are the largest consumer of wine and products in the world. Like, you could spin your wheels. The other thing is, once you get your products in America, you're now exposed to 50 states. Whereas if you're in Europe, you now need an importer for Spain, France, Belgium, Holland, the EU, or the UK. You need... You're right. You need somebody who speaks the languages of the area. And you need somebody area. for every single country. Yeah. But which if you've is, got a guy from Texas, he knows Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, he knows the area. You're dealing with the importer. You're dealing with like a Vias, a Kermit Lynch. Like you're just dealing with the person bringing it into the United States. That's going to give you exposure to every single state. It's not like you're trying to find an importer for just Texas, an importer for just Louisiana. Then you got to find an importer for just New York and an importer for just California. That's what they deal with in Europe. Cause right, because if you get a total wine, it's a different country, total wine deal. All of a sudden, you're in 27 states. You can't do that in Europe. You're in. Di- it's a different country. It's now. It's yeah. You know, if you if you want to get up into the Norse area, like like I need a different person for Belgium, Finland, Sweden. You know, Norway, yeah. all them. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, you're right, it'd be all over. It's the a point. lot of work. It's a lot of jumping through hurdles to sell. You know, 50 cases or 100 cases to Belgium, where. Now I can put on I can put a couple containers together, put on a truck, drop it in New York, and then they're going to ship it out to California and Texas and Idaho and Arizona and everything. You're right, because like I'm looking at our bot, like all right, like this one, right? This Mistral, I never even heard of it in any way, shape, or form, and it was made in Monterey, which is seven hour drive from here. And, and, and that's the other thing. That's one of the things that you know our president has talked a lot about is we have been a country of importing and not so much exporting and a lot of these other countries won't accept our exports or they are reluctant to take our exports but they want us to import everything Everything. and wine is a huge part of that we import an insane amount of wine and we export very 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 little now do you think that's not just because you know we like to keep a lot of stuff in-house or do you think america's got such crazy and i always love to use the term for like add but like we constantly want to try the newest thing so we're just like oh let's try argentina let's try australia let's try new zealand sauv blanc blah 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 because let's say for one second that we didn't bring in new zealand sauv blanc where's the market for sauv blanc california oregon it's like maybe they grow more in the finger lakes or something like clearly it's america we could grow it somewhere but how many people are actually gonna grow it so do we say that's it? No more bringing it in, and now we got to start having people find and plant it. That's a forty-year experiment to see where the best Sauv Blanc in America would be. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, our our people have found that they like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. That's why they gravitate to New Zealand. That's why it's such a huge market here. But if our people, example, Argentina. 
Argentina does not allow any imports whatsoever. There's none. So my friends that live in Argentina will come to the United States and they will actually buy French burgundies and high-end wines that they can't get. And they box up, they bring it with them to Argentina so they could drink it at their house in Argentina because they can't buy it in the stores. Argentina exports 99% when the wine industry, it's like 99% exports, 1% imports. Huh. They're all about buy our stuff. We don't want to buy your stuff. Interesting. And that's the way some of these other countries are. And, and it's unfortunate for some of our producers. But then again, in, in America, three out of every four bottles of wine consumed is United States produced wine. Yeah. 75% of the wine consumed is United States based. And the last thing I saw, and I don't know what year this was, but the most recent thing I saw was 90% of it's coming out of California. 90% is California. Yeah. And then you'll start seeing a lot of places grow. Like, honestly, so I did a wine festival this weekend, and there was, if I'm not mistaken, like maybe like 10 of us. It was 10 of us down there, 10 wineries from Arizona. And I got a lot of mixed, I got a real true mixed bag of what I heard. And uh, I won't talk crap about the Arizona wine industry because I understand that it's young and there's a lot of things, and I have my own opinions about it. But I would have somebody come up to me and, and drink some of my wines. And now, to be fair, I get my grapes from California. Um, so I have a little bit easier time of being able to sell things. But I would have people come up to go, oh, hey, did you try this winery over here? And I'm like, yeah, I've had that before. And they'd be like, man, that is just the most disgusting, awful, terrible. I can't even believe they're making wine. Why would they even do this? It's the worst thing ever. And I'm like, they've been open for five years and their vineyards are five to one years old. Like I know a guy who made a, a Grenache out of one-year-old vines. That's not really going to taste like much of anything. It's going to be probably pretty terrible. But then I'd have somebody else come in and be like, man, did you have this winery? Yeah, I did. What'd you think? And they're like, wow, their Malbec was amazing. I actually really liked it. I liked it better than Argentinian Malbec. I'm definitely going to support them now. Cool. Then you found your taste and you get to support them. I think eventually, yeah, in a long enough period of time, the wines will do well. But I've never, like, I, you could take any California wine, people would be like, yeah, that's really good, it's California. I think the Arizona thing will eventually shift into a, you know, someday, somebody will find a vine 10 years, 20 years from now when these older guys have children, and, and what we were talking about earlier with the generational thing, hand it to their kids and be like, listen, that hill does great Grenache, that hill does great Movedra, and make a blend, and probably really cool for you. So... And what did you say in the podcast like five or six ago? We were the 22nd largest state doing this. If you think about like country-wise, that'd be the equivalent of what? Like Czechoslovakia making wine and people are still spending. I think we've made like $120 million in wine last year for the state. <laughs> yeah. But if you talk about some of these smaller nations that are doing wine, they want their people to drink their wine. So they will produce their – they will make sure that their wine – is given to their residents for an affordable price. Mm -hmm. So if you live in a small nation and your nation is producing wine, living there, you're going to be able to get plenty of their wine for two or three euros a gallon or yeah. a, a whatever the liter, whatever. Here, unfortunately, living in Arizona, these Arizona producers want to give me a bottle of wine that's $50 a yeah. bottle that is still... Huge detriment. ...does not hold up globally to that $50 price point. Yeah. It's frustrating. It doesn't make me want to drink their wine. If they produced a quality product that was sub-10 that a residents of this state could drink on a regular basis, 
it would help their business grow faster. Most people I know won't drink Arizona wines because of the price point versus That's, true. The, That's a good point. versus the quality. If it was give me a wine that maybe I don't think is the best in the world and it's $9 a bottle. I'm like, that's great. This, this is very drinkable for $9 a bottle. When you tell me it's 50 and it's drinking like a $9 bottle, then I get a little upset. That's, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. I don't know if we need an Arizona resident card that says I'm an Arizona resident. I should be able to get your wine for 90% off, but that's what they kind of need to do for us. Yeah, that it's true. Cause if you want a budding market to grow up, you got to give it to the people around because these festivals get packed and people love it. Honestly, the market is there. It's not like people are not trying Arizona wine. People constantly are like, well, let's try it. Let's see what it is. Everybody in America is willing to experiment by trying something new. They definitely latch on at some point, but somebody had to try something to get there. People in Arizona want to drink or people want to support their local economy more yes. now than ever before. Yeah. People go out of their Look way. Look at the breweries we have. Most, I, honest to God, most places we go with taps, it's Arizona beer. Yeah, they they people pride themselves on supporting the local economy, but as a restaurateur, you can't even afford to put these Arizona wines on your list because they're too much. Yeah, and they're like, they look at you like, but I have to charge this much. I'm like. Then how is it still cheaper for me to get it from California? How is it cheaper for me to get this from New Mexico? How is it cheaper for me to get this from... I know why it's cheaper for me to get it from Portugal and some of these European yes. nations. <laughs> However, it's still coming over on a boat, a plane, multiple trucks, taxes, sales reps, and everything, and it's still cheaper. And it shouldn't be that way. It, I, I'm... I'm one of the kids that always puts his hand in the cookie jar because I've always I've been in imports and sales. For that wine to come from Italy to the table in Arizona, I got to make my cut because I'm a sales rep. I'm a salesman. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting my cut along with 19 other people, and it's still cheaper than the guy who's driving his wine in his pickup truck from northern Arizona. So do you think that it's a detriment or helpful for America to be like, listen... We're totally open. Everybody bring your wine in. Do what you want. Sell it here. Charge whatever price. Blah, 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 blah. What do you think it hurts the American market? Like, if we went nationalistic in a way and closed our isolationist and went, uh, we're not going to bring in anybody else's wine, I absolutely believe we'll find a niche where people will be like, well, I can no longer get Sau Blanc, so we got to start planting it everywhere and growing. That's clearly what would happen. But what if it just turns out that something just don't get made and the best happens to come out of New Zealand or France or uh, Spain? Like, honestly, I absolutely think Barolo is my favorite wine. The Nebbiolo grape is probably my favorite grape. And if nobody else in the world is doing it well, well, then I'm glad I have the ability to buy that. Or should it be like, nope, we're closing up. Now everybody has to experiment and find that thing. It screws all of us along the way, but it's great for the future generations because now all that stuff stays within the country. Unfortunately, these countries are all about shipping as much wine to us, but they don't want to take it back themselves. And I don't know, maybe some of these other countries just don't want to drink American wines, but I... I or it's the do you know what it comes down to? It's the price point. Yeah. Bottom line is you're not going to get a, a ten dollar bottle over to Europe. A, 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 okay, so I'm in. I'm It'd in. Be Franzia I'm, by I, then. I'm in Paris, France. I'm in a little apartment, hanging out. I go to another little convenience store. The wines they have they have Bordeaux on a shelf. Their Bordeaux are going to be one euro, three euro, and five euro. That's pretty much my choice. 
By the time that Bordeaux comes to America, that Bordeaux is probably going to be $20 a bottle because mm -hmm. of me and all the people that got to put their hands in the cookie jar. Now, my American wines that I'm paying $10 or $15 here for that are grown in California, by the time that goes on a truck and goes over to the convenience store in Paris, it's sitting on a shelf going one euro, three euro, five euros, 85 euros because of all the net. If it costs $20 to come to me here in Arizona, it's going to be a lot. How much is there. it going to be by the time I get it to Paris yeah. in the shelf? So, and it's not going to be our French, good stuff. A Frenchman looking down going, I'm going to spend one euro, five euro, whatever, or 85 for their shit they sent me. I'm that, it'll never sell. I guess it'll also, never sell. I guess also this too. It's not like we're bringing something unique to the table. You know, if you try to bring over an American cab blend, they're going to be like, but we have Bordeaux. Oh, but we have Pinot from California. But we have Burgundy. Okay, well, uh, we have Syrah from Washington. Well, we've got the Cote d'Aron. And then you go to Italy and try to drop, what, a Sangiovese on them. They're going to be like, get the fuck out of here. Wait, we have Sangiovese everywhere. I have a Ford Fiesta, but I have Mercedes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I got a, I got a Prius. But I got a Ferrari. Dude, man, we, we do. Our wines but, are like cars in a way. We're like a Napa cab is like a 69 Camaro that gets eight miles to the gallon. No shelf life. Totally. All power and yep. loud and killer. And everybody loves it. Versus the Bordeaux's like like a Bentley, you know, like an old Bentley. Like it's not going to get great gas mileage. But man, it's elegant. It's soft. You just, you know the brand when you see it and you travel it. Every, yeah. Just every day your Beamer's. You know, when you're in a Beamer, you know you're driving a Beamer. Yeah. Like, there's something yeah, about Yeah, the only it. American car over there is what? Maybe, maybe a Mustang? You don't <laughs> see them at all. Yeah. Zero. I, yeah. It, it is weird, because you're right. We sure don't. It's funny. We always talk about, we need to export stuff, but what if they're just like, we've been doing it so long, we don't need to export anything. Like, we don't, we don't need your Suburbans, because we've got Land Rover. Uh, we don't need your sports cars. We have Lamborghini and Ferrari and we don't, Porsche. We don't need your clunky shit. Our shit's refined and... Yeah, I imagine the GMC Avalon is going to do super well over there when Mercedes and BMWs are driving, and Audi. Yeah, driving Impala down the streets of, like, Florence. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the fuck is not that? Not so much. No, maybe, like, the only one that would make sense would be, like, a Harley Davidson. But I bet a lot of people will be really fucking annoyed by that. Like, this idiot's got a Harley. Why well, drive a Harley? You could drive a Ducati. Yeah, but it's not a Harley, man. <laughs> it's Harley, not. Harley lets your neighbors know that they don't like you. <laughs> yeah, my Ducati, I'll race your Harley. Yeah. <laughs> like, Dude, America is such the perfect example of being loud and obnoxious and amazing and bold and big. But that's, like, our, that's our wines. That's our liquors. That's, bold, I've talked about it. Big, like, cars, huge, yeah. loud. Yeah. Now, America's, it's funny, America speaks for itself sometimes in its drinks. It's amazing. IPAs are just, here's all the hop. It's the biggest, hoppiest, maltiest drink you can have. And there's pretty much nowhere else that nobody And wants for the to most part, you go to Europe, it's all about Pilsners and light beers. Light beers. Yeah, like, and the fancy beers, the uh, the Chimay's, those guys from Belgium, they've been making them forever in a day. But those are your big ones. <laughs> most of the Europeans, when they come to America, they ask for a beer, like, what do you want? They're like, something light. Like that's they want something like they don't want to drink a triple hop dry hop yeah. IPA our like, super ultimate double triple quadruple imperial stout IPA with jalapenos in it like what the fuck is that by yeah. the way that's a real thing I've had one of those it's impossible to drink 
Did Arizona have like a chili wine? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guys that do, uh, uh, and this is clearly an Arizona thing or maybe a South thing, is uh, people are doing not just habaneros, but jalapenos, hatch chilies. Yeah, chili stuff. It's it's That's kind of the cool thing with America, though, is you get to, you're no longer bound by the laws that like Europeans are, where you have to do with these styles. It's uh, pay your tax man and do whatever you want. But I, I think that's one of the problems why you don't see our wine so much overseas because of the pricing. It just wouldn't work. By the time it gets over there, it'll be so expensive. Whereas they can ship wines to us and they can hit our market and they're still fairly affordable. You know, I can, I can import actually Ponceau talked about this in sour grapes. He's like, he's like, I sell a wine for a hundred euros a bottle and then it hits the market and they're selling it for a thousand euros a bottle. He's like, this isn't fair. Yeah. You know, and from a producer standpoint, it's got to be crazy to be like, I sold that wine this year to my distributor for 50 euros, but it's on an auction house right now for 50,000 euros. Fuck. Like, that's got to be crazy. That's crazy. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. And, and I also think as part as that big thing is, is uh, they've been doing it so long, they know what grows well. What does well? Because you're right. Because there's probably a person in France who's like, oh, I don't want a Burgundy, and they'll get a Chianti. There's nothing that America can bring to the table for the European market that they kind of don't already have. There's really not. So, what are you thinking of this? I think it's delicious. It's it's cre- it really it's creamy. Up. I wish it has a. Li- I wish I ha- personally, I wish it had a little more acid. I like a little yeah, more. Yeah, definitely not a lot of acid in it. It's 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 got a real roundness, like a creaminess to it. Like the it's oak, definitely a big body wine. The oak is really integrated into this way where, when, when you when you taste it, it leaves this film in your mouth of this like creaminess, which is really nice. Um, the fruit is still really 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 strong. If they, I don't think they make this. I haven't heard of this before. Yeah, I'm gonna Google it while so, you're talking. So, see if they still make it. So one problem I think the front of this label has so is that people in America have been turned off by certain things. So the front of this label says in very small letter letters Joseph Phelps Vineyards. Then it says the Mistral, the vintage, and then it says Monterey County Red Wine. And I think when you in America when you put Monterey County anything. Napa Valley red wine, blah, 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 red wine, something, something, red wine. It gets grouped into this category of cheap. Yeah. And I think it turns people off. I think you give it a fancy name. Oh, there's my meritage, my meritage. Here's my, here, you give it some form of, uh, uh, I said, give it a name. People will gravitate towards it more than just red wine. When you put red wine on it, I think it just, it did because, and by the way, this is being a 2002. It's not going to say what Santa Lucia Highlands or whatever AVA or may or may not be in because it's got to be in. Okay, so here I just pulled it up. So it's located in Monterey's Arroyo Seco AVA. So that wasn't an AVA back then, probably. So now you got to say obviously that, but obviously being red wine with what six different grapes. But it's a blend. In it. Instead of saying a Rhone style blend or coming up with it, just says the Mistral. But I literally think when you put the word just. Red wine on a label, it cheapens it. It does. I, I totally agree with you because you, sometimes you, people want to know what's in it. I always used to say that you say, here's my Chateau Damien blah, 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 Chardonnay. I charge $10. As soon as I say Chateau Damien blah, 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 Chardonnay Reserve, I could charge 11 The word The word reserve, you can easily charge more money for. Yes, absolutely. Even though it's the same juice. When you put red wine on it, you instantly have to charge less. So I'm looking at it. 
It looks like they still make it because there's a 2016 selling for about 30 bucks a bottle. But it says it's Ventana Lemistrel. Does that even say that? A Ventana Rhone Blend. They might add another name to it or something. Yeah. I, I'm not seeing anything about Joseph Phelps with it anymore. I'm just seeing Ventana. Let's yeah. So who knows? It's it's kind of cool though because it's something that I never honestly thought was around or was a real thing. And who knows what's going on with it? Maybe we got a Rudy wine. It's a faker. It's a faker. No, it was real at one point for sure. <laughs> I guess just the modern times is you know what's going on with it. But honestly, I, I'm kind of surprised. I didn't think this would. I grabbed it because I was like, oh, let's see what a Monterey County wine holds up to this long out. And uh, I I kind of like it. Yeah, there it is. It's now called... All right, so here's the new label. Joseph's Blend, single vineyard, Monterey County. Actually, a really dope new label. Yeah, they made it yeah. fancy. Yeah, and they got rid of the, the cool-ass bottle. They probably spend... they. The the pack they waxed it. Look at it. Look at they put a giant wax the, and they turned it into a burgundy bottle. The pack there it is. the packaging is better, but I think they probably spend less money because of the cost of that bottle alone. Probably because this this is a custom blown bottle. Like that's got to be so freaking expensive to have this blown. Plus it's yeah because they they like, turn it into a you know cursive writing Joseph's blend. Yeah, there's the 2016 release. They wax the top. Oh, they make a Viognier of it too. Sweet. So it's cool. I think it's fun. You know, like I, I will give credit. You know, if somebody makes a good wine, American wine can hold well enough to age decently. You know, especially wines out of Monterey. Like I'm not expecting for this wine to age. I wasn't expecting this to blow me away like the David uh, or David uh, Peter Michael, like we had. Part of me was expecting it to taste like the Russian Roulette collection, like taste like the wines in the back room, mm-hmm. like a little over their top, a little over the their past their prime. So some might be drinkable, but you have to force yourself to like it. Well, it's like we were talking, like if you have a, if you have 12 shots at a good wine, one of them will be good and the other 11. We'll yeah. see. So the fun thing is, is I do have a, uh, a Justin, it's called the orphan. Also part of this collection from 2005, pretty much the same blend, you know, just a Rhone blend. So we'll see if uh, Justin held up to his at all too. Same, well, vi- same vintage. I think it's Oh five. Yes. It's an Oh five. So three years but uh, like I said, Rhone style blend. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy. I, I, I expected, I set the bar low and it was higher than what the bar was I expected. Do you think you're enjoying it more because you set the bar low? If this That's was a good a, question. If this was a Bordeaux, if this was Chateau. <laughs> Chateau blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And we opened it right now expecting it to be like the greatest thing ever. Would you be disappointed? Man, we're bringing this all the way back down to the uh, the counterfeit stuff from earlier. No, it's perfect. No, honestly, it's a great question. I think uh, if somebody poured me this bottle of wine and said this was a 2015, I'd be disappointed because I'd be like, oh, it's not that fruity and good. But if somebody gave it to me and just said, hey, we got this really cool old bottle of wine, I'd be like, "Eh, I don't expect it to do much. And they gave me this. I'd be like, oh, actually, I was really surprised and happy. It's weird. Maybe if nobody ever actually says anything about wine and just pours it for people, and you could see what it did. I think wines would be very, very different. Because because going into this, if I just tasted this just now, if you said, here, try this, I was like, I, I would think it would be okay, above average, average-ish. I would probably put it at like a six-ish. 
Yeah. On a one to ten, I'm not giving this ninety three points. I'm, I hate those scores, but oh, yeah, I, I agree. If 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 five is average, ten is unachievable, and one I can't drink. I'd put this in the a mid six range. It's above average. It's drinking good, but I'm not knocking down anyone's doors. Now, now this is me not knowing the vintage. This is not knowing that it's okay. That's I was just these I was years literally old. just going to say something. Now, like that. Okay. Now, 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 once I find out what's in the glass and that it's a wine that is as old as it is, that's going to go up. That's going from a a low six probably to like a high seven in my category. In yeah. My like, I think the fact that it's old, it's and still it holding held, up. It's still got it fruit. It's really cool to drink something that's like 15 years old, like 14 years old. That's 16 years old. My addition, yes. subtraction. <laughs> yeah, right about the right area. But it having something that's older like that, you have to forgive some flaws. I think. Yeah, and and I think too when you get a really old bottle of wine. And your expectation is that the fruit's going to fall out and old world flavors are going to come out. You're not going to be too happy. If you like wines like myself, I like younger wines. It's when we open open the 01 Ravana. Oh, and it's just killing it. When you're reminded that you can do something very special with an old wine. It's when you're reminded that, okay, this is what a quality producer with quality fruit... like. This whole, we make excuses like, oh, it's 10 years old, but it just didn't hold up. Yeah. Bullshit. It should hold it up. It should have held we, up. We do make excuses sometimes for shit not holding up. That's true. Because you and I both know with the right producer and the right grape, that will hold up on the right year. We had an 80 sterling one time at AZ Wines 70. randomly. Three. Yeah. I remember yes. it because that was the year. It blew, it blew me, me away, away that a sterling yeah. wine could do that. That was, uh, I, and I can't remember the guy's name. He's, he talks a lot. Uh, I, yep. Yeah. I, I, was, I was next door doing something. I stumbled in. They said, try this, this, yeah. and this. You I walked the over club. to talk to you, and yeah. he was like, hey, try this. And yeah. I remember drinking it going, wow, that's, that's a really tasty cat. That's really good. 73 sterling. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. No way. And it was against... Some wines that were part of the Paris tasting, like it had a. I think there was a stag sleep in there. From, it, it was a Ridge Montebello. Was that's in there. what it was. It yeah, was, yep. And was, Ridge holds well, and the Ridge was good, but that Sterling was. I know, and Sterling and Pete Sterling is a. If I would have, if I would have, if I was seeing a Sterling that was thirty five years old, oh, I'd been like, man. I'm not buying it. I'm I wouldn't give, touch I, I give eight, it. Eight bucks for it, like I want to pay a dollar for it. Now I know differently. Right, and it blew away the Ridge Montebello. Like, That's why it's good to take wine, and no matter what the year is, at least give it the shot. So, and this is a cool question I'm going to ask you. So, in this, I think it's a good way to finish up. This is 56% Syrah, 32% Grenache, and 7% Carignan, 3% and 2% of uh, Petit and Petit Syrah and Alicante Bichette. So, what do you think's making this wine hold up? The fact that it's 56% Syrah because of Grenache? I don't know well enough, and I don't know. Maybe you do. Does Grenache hold up over a long period of time? I don't consider it being a long, age-worthy grape. To me, it's the Syrah that's the age-worthy. It's holding this up. Because Carignan can be super tannic and hold it up a little bit, maybe tannin-wise. So for me, when I think about age, I think about acid. The more acid, the more age. The better it ages. Well, now you're talking about a lot of grapes that don't have a lot of acid. Because Petit Syrah is not known for its acid. Syrah. Syrah could. But this is Monterey. This is warm climate. But still, it's Syrah. Like, a lot of Syrahs don't hit their stride for five years. Like, that's just... 
it, it's a tough grape sometimes to sell because it doesn't hit its stride for so long. And then by the time it does, you're like, oh, it's already five years old and it's kind of, I got five more vintages to sell. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's too bad. It's such an unappreciated grape. But yeah, man, any final thoughts on the wine? I've, I'm really enjoying it as far as the, the flavor profiles. Stewed fruits, cooked fruits, some older tastes, but not that... I sat in my window or I sat in Damien's back room for the last five years taste <laughs> against a heated wall. There's a, a, like I said, that real creaminess to it. Like every sip I taste, like the malolactic fermentation is like literally like you could feel the film in the inside of your mouth from the creaminess of it. Yeah. And it's just really well integrated. I myself, when I saw a Monterey wine that was 16 years old, I kind of cringed. I was like, Ooh, this is going to not be good. Um, just cause I didn't expect it. Um, but it is Phelps, and Phelps makes quality wine beginning to end. They always have, ever since some of the first vintages they've ever made, have always been really good. Yeah, I'm with you, man. The, cr- the creaminess on this is fantastic. It feels great. It's a definitely full-body wine. I have enough fruit in here where I'm still enjoying it. It doesn't taste old and dirty and grimy and, you know, like, earthy. It's enough where I think, I think, we, I think you had it right. A six, if you were just poured it, but once you find out how old it was and what it was made of and how it was done, yeah, it's definitely much higher. I'm uh, I'm really impressed that this wine stood up as long as it did. Yeah, it's so drinkable. I mean, yeah, I, I wouldn't kick it out of my bed. Yeah. So for anybody out there, which is you know going to be super rare, if you find a Joseph Phelps Lemistral, it'll age for ten to fifteen years and uh, probably start to fall apart around that. I think that's a real true. I see it in magazines where people are like, oh, this will make it 10, 15 years, and it makes it barely five. I, clearly, this wine made it. This wine made it 16 years to be right on the back end. I wouldn't want to drink this in five years. I wouldn't want to drink this from... Yeah, I, I would think this is on the back end of that that hill we're talking about. Still yeah. good enough to drink now, two, three years from now? No way. Yep. I agree. Cool. Well, that was fun, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Wrap and it up. Uh, we got some dope stuff coming up. Awesome. Later, brother. Cheers. <laughs>